Hello! Welcome back to another episode of Just Two Dudes Reading Theory. I'm Chris. I'm Preston. And this week we are reading No One Is Bored, Everything Is Boring by Mark Fisher, which is out of this gigantic collected and unpublished writings of Mark Fisher, uh, published by Repeater. It's um, called K-Punk. It's called K-Punk. Sorry, I forgot the title. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> so what'd you think, Preston? Um... The, the very definition of short and sweet. It was a uh, fantastic read that was over too soon. But the nice side of that is like, I feel like the point was well made. And, you know, what do you really need to expand on it? Like, it was... It, it was good. How, uh, how did you enjoy it, Chris? So I liked it. So, you know, he was from the era of blogging, which... Are we still in the era of blogging, or is this now blogging? No, we're in the era of, yes, yes, num, 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 yeah, all our fun, weird NPC, have you seen the? Have oh yeah, the NPC it? on TikTok, yeah. Uh, I, Mark, I, think... I wish Mark Fisher RIP was here to comment on the NPC <laughs> phenomenon. No kidding, uh, but um, I think the blog has kind of been replaced by... TikTok at this point. People aren't going to sit there and type it out when they, you know, can add images. Saying all the stuff, and you can have a little background of things you're explaining. Yeah, it's like, like it's like a, uh, Instagram stories. It. Yeah, like yeah. We've, we've kind of, uh, I think we've replaced the blog, you know. Or it isn't, in a it isn't what sense. it was in the days of MySpace. Yeah, in the early 2000s, the law, what we thought was a lawless wasteland at the time, uh, which was. <laughs> Not true at all, apparently. <laughs> or, or maybe it is still true. But uh, uh, one thing on that I thought is that the blogger era was the era of online diaries. And now we're in the era of online, like, photo, what do they call Photo collages? Like, uh, what is it called when you make a collage of your family? You know, scrapbook. So we oh, went from diary to scrapbook. Video well. scrapbook. Yeah, we went from <laughs> diary to scrapbook, right, is oh. our main way of doing it. Okay, so anyway, in this essay... Which was actually, looks like it was published in Visual Artists News Sheet. I'm guessing, I should have done this research beforehand, um, that it could have been a review of the article. So it talks about an article called, We Are All Very Anxious by the Institute of Precarious Consciousness, which neither of us have read, but we might read next or yeah, later. I, I, yeah, I've been reading Philip K. Dick lately, so when I read... That line, you know, we are all very anxious by the Institute of Precarious Consciousness. I thought it was, like, made up at first. Yeah, I thought, I thought it was it random. It yeah. Because yeah. uh, it, it's a newer piece, and so, you know, we're in the alter-modern or post-modern or post-post-modern era, and so it'd be totally fair game to just make it up. Right. Uh, and publish it as your own. But, um, so I would say that the main point of this short and sweet two-page scrap is that Mark Fisher thinks we've changed from a system where we have a lot of boredom, which he locates in the assembly line, the, what he calls the Fordist economy, mm. to one of anxiety. So boredom has been replaced by anxiety. And I don't know. I I love that thesis. I think it's I think oh, it's great. It that that's one of the things that uh you read and just kind of hits. You're like, oh, shit. And especially now, like, I know that he was, if this was 2014, it's, you know, in the midst of, like, our exponential rise of tech, apps, all that kind of stuff. Um, but it just seems spot on for uh, something that, you know, I think we all kind of struggle with it. I mean, I definitely notice issues with it but this uh he talks a lot about how we've kind of eliminated boredom and instead just filled every possible waiting moment with stimulation Stuff. so it's just constant stimulation which one of my uh biggest pet peeves i think is a major side product of this and it's the fact that everybody's on their phone at a stoplight 
So you gotta, every time you have a stoplight, you gotta wait for the slow caterpillar of everybody realizing that the light's green because they're staring at their phone and don't realize until the person in front of them has gone or they're done with their text and realize the light's green because we just like have to fill those moments. And I think that kind of stuff is like destroying your reaction time because you're yeah. just constantly distracted. Yeah, you're constantly distracted, or as the great aphorism he writes goes, no one is bored, everything is boring. So mm. the when you ask someone, or me, I mean, I think we all are implicated in this in a certain sense, why are you on your phone right now? I think if you really just, like, held a little BB gun or, you know, parakeet that's weaponized to their head, they would eventually say... So I don't have to deal with the nothing. So I don't yeah. have to deal. So I don't have to be bored. Like boredom has become a sort of sin, I guess, oh. of the modern era. Where if you're bored, it's not just that you're not producing. Because that sounds Ooh. like too Fordist. Like you, you can produce at all times. But what it is is that you have an existential fault. Like you could be doing more. Oh yeah, you're wasting. You're wasting, wasting this time. precious, precious time. And I'm going to think about it when I dis am deciding on an activity, whether I'm going to zone out or whether I'm going to get deep into something like a book. The line, for boredom is a state of absorption. Yes, right? that's what I was going to say. It's like the, uh, the way he talks about boredom, because this article, like, definitely uh, kind of brought, like, flashbacks of childhood in what it was like to be bored. Before we had streaming sites, sometimes there wasn't anything on TV. You had nothing to do, which you know, you can always create your own activities and whatnot. Right, you can but, use your imagination. But now, like, you know, it's rare when you can't find a movie you want to watch that isn't new. If you've got enough streaming sites, you can always watch what you want to watch. I have a terrible habit of practicing with stuff in the background because I'm so used to like overstimulus. Yeah. Like I have specific shows that I've either seen a lot or they're like comfort shows that I don't really have to pay attention to. Yeah. But I like them in the background when I'm grinding through boring exercise stuff. Right. That's important for, you know, building other things. Obviously when I'm like playing songs or like working on stuff, I can't have anything else going on. That's like stuff I have to listen to. But when you're, like, grinding out muscle memory exercises and stuff, like, I like to have just something in the background to keep my brain stimulated. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's really a good thing. And I think if there's one thing I wish, I mean, obviously, Mark Fisher is a short-form writer. I mean, his most famous work, Capitalist Realism, the whole book, I think, is 80 pages. Oh, In wow. short, short chapters. Very punchy. And so he's got a lot of killer lines. Like oh, the yeah. this one I really liked is the brain is no longer allowed any time to idle. Instead, it is inundated with a seamless flow of low-level stimulus. Yeah, that, that hit a little close to home for me. It did, and it kind of like this is such a weird thing to say because I don't actually think this is a critique, but when when people microdose instead of just becoming really high but less frequently i also think it's kind of similar like i'm gonna do just a little molly i mean that's that's not really appropriate for the show i guess but i, I think would it's fine you know like i've seen people microdosing like, i would say like mushrooms is a lot more common lsd yeah like. yeah but but they're not they're not getting blasted away like their, their ego's not being destroyed they can have their high experience, but also still have their low stimulus satisfaction oh. instead of really surrendering to whatever experience is at hand. So, like, I guess I wouldn't really, I guess the drug thing isn't really important. What would be important is just anything that requires complete immersion, mm. which I think is anything worthwhile doing, I guess, uh, right? Like music or, it's or like philosophy, really I mean, you know? I would never imagine like a million years at a gig being like, yeah, I gotta have my headphones on so I can listen to my shows while I'm playing. Like, that's, that's insane. Like, you, you can't perform if you're not in it. Like, even people who don't know anything about music can tell when you're in it and when you're not. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like... Um, I had a lot of thoughts like of modern media that work really well within the framework of Mark Fisher. And the one is like... Um, what's really interesting about Wally is that that movie requires you to actually like focus like you can kind of zone out on the landscapes but like to really respect the film i feel like you have to adopt a different viewing position than you do the other pixar films uh so this um this was one that like kari as a kid didn't like wally kari is uh honest Anna's wife. Anna is my partner. Kari is Preston's wife. Anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> Kari and Anna are right now watching a show together while we do our show. Go ahead. So <laughs> that's funny. Um, not a big fan of Wally initially. Um, like as a kid, just, I don't like it. There's no talking in it until like the end. Um, but I, when I watched Wally, that was one of the movies I was like, holy shit that's some next level stuff like it is yeah. it is a movie that forces you to pay attention you don't get to zone out there's no dialogue you have to pay attention to what's happening to follow the story and to be in the landscape really immerse yourself in the yes because it's really like a great one to see in theaters because it's so immersive i mean it's so big it's, it's vast. vast it's like uh, it's vast. like kubrick you know it's kubrick vast you know it's, oh it's, man i would have killed the c 2001 that would have been amazing. So then the ultimate the ultimate media that would shake us back into... <laughs> you know, it's funny. We always... In the normal binary is to get out of boredom. Like, you shake someone out of their boring day-to-day -day life. But, you know, to inversely shake someone back into boring, I think you should subject <laughs> them to Barry Lyndon. Because the Kubrick film about revolutionary time. Oh, you know, I haven't like, seen Barry Lyndon. Oh, okay, it's fine. So the other media I was thinking of that really resonated with me, that I just love, that's really related to what Mark Fisher's going for, is Arcade Fire's album, The Suburbs. So is that the one we listened to on the way back from... No, you haven't heard that one. Ooh, um, so there's songs like We Used to Wait, where it's about how we used to wait to have to have letters to arrive. Oh. But now everything is instant and that and that changes the whole meaning of communication when you don't have to wait or in a sense invest with care the speed itself of communication oh but because that waiting is boredom right yes like and i think another like virtue if you will if you want to put that title yeah. on it that is often tied with boredom though is patience and holy hell that is evaporating like, I'm always surprised with, you know, how often people don't actually listen to music. Like, music has very much become a background, low-level stimulus for a lot of people. It's what you do while you work, I'm doing it while I drive, all this stuff. But the act of, like, when was the last time you sat and stared at the album artwork while you listened to the album? Like, that's not much of a thing anymore, you know what I mean? I guess, although when we when when we hit on this line of critique, I actually usually take a less fatalistic, maybe a less cynical thought, because you know, in the history of music, you know, very rarely in the 18th or early 19th century would you go to an opera and catch the whole opera. I mean, you're you're there for so many social reasons. Yeah, you know, like like all the Balzac novels. You're, you're at the theater, but what is actually on stage is, like, fundamentally irrelevant to it's, the novel. It's, like, one of the frustrating <laughs> things I have with the Redview Garden concerts that we have here. Yeah. Because they get, like, some of the best acts that come through Utah, but if you're a member there, you donate, you get advanced tickets, so you get access to them. So usually the members end up buying all the tickets. The last few shows I've been to there... Um, you're surrounded by wealthy people who are not even watching the concert. They're socializing. They yeah, have these networking. fancy charcuterie boards. They're yeah. having their, their wine. Because you can take your own food and drinks to this one. You can take your own like little picnic there. So they're, yeah. Like, I mean, when, when I worked at the hospital for one of them, um, we were sitting like right next to a bunch of doctors that I worked with. They were all just hanging out with their partners and a bunch of other people from the hospital just chatting it up. 
And I'm like, will you shut the fuck up? I'm trying to listen to a concert I paid to see. <laughs> so you, you're, you're even more, it's not, cynical's not the right word. You would have been that guy at the theater in the 19th century going, guys, I know you're, you're all involved with each other in this drama, but I don't really care about that. I'm, I'm trying to watch the stage. Yes. You know that Mahler was one of the people who really... I might be, you know, my, if there's any musicologist listen, come and correct us, of course, but if I remember right, Mahler was famous as a conductor for demanding the audience to listen. You know, he made that shift towards what we think of as the modern concert hall experience, where it's almost, um, it's much too stuffy now. Right, like mm. you go and, and people get mad at someone for coughing or just existing wrong. Uh, yeah, you know, I, so. I def, there is there is certainly a line to that, but I you know I think that the idea of concert etiquette is kind of dying too. Yeah, and you know, like at least for me, when I was you know when I was younger, most of the shows that I went to were metal shows, which. Your rules are a little bit different than most of the shows that I go to nowadays. Like, personal space, the second you're in the hall, that's gone. Like, you, yeah. you don't, you, you're forfeiting any, any concept of like, what are you doing in my bubble? You're gonna get bumped around. It's gonna right. happen. That's it's inherent with it. But it's interesting to see the shift with like a lot of the blue shows that I go to now, where you're seeing this mix of like middle-aged people from like mid 40s to like 70s who have grown up with blues like all the old stuff or want to see like all the mix of yeah. people like me and younger that are like this new generation getting into the genre where like a lot of the uh older people are kind of like yeah dude it's a fucking concert you 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 don't really you don't get to have six feet around you when you're that close to the stage this is not how it works just because you got here early and stood at the front doesn't mean everybody isn't going to crowd you. That's kind of what happens at shows like that. So it's kind of weird seeing that. But then there, the other side of it is, like, how oblivious people are to just, like, ruining other people's experience. Yeah. Been yeah. to a few where, like, I'm all for you, like, dancing at a show. But if you're continually elbowing people because you're too drunk to, like, keep your shit together... Yeah. You know, that's, uh... That's not really part of the whole experience, if you will. But I feel like we got way off on no, the I liked there. it. <laughs> I, got a, I got another in for us, too. I liked it, though. It was good. It's, it's relevant because, also, uh, for everyone, I didn't mention this. This was published in 2014. So this is... Mod this is this is contemporary theory. You know, we're not reading um this is not Donna Haraway, which felt like it could have been published yesterday, of course, but yeah, but, but it's not it's... Ma, you know, this was published yesterday, um, metaphorically or somewhat. And I think there's a word that I think, if I remember right, Mark Fisher uses elsewhere, but that he doesn't hear that he's kind of alluding to, which is after paragraph two. Uh, the downside of these newly fluid conditions is perpetual anxiety. What we call that now is the gig economy. Oh. And, you know, we're all in the gig economy. And that's what he means is the gig Like, Fordist has been replaced by the gig economy. And the precariousness about the gig economy is pretty strong in America. In other countries, I don't know. I'm assuming, I mean, Mark Fisher, if I remember right, is British, so... I'm assuming it's similar, but it basically it's a situation where you are cobbling together a living, and at times you may actually be cobbling together a great living, but unlike older scenarios where there's an infrastructure in place to prevent, uh, to have many fail-safes in place where you don't lose a base value of income or security, the gig economy renders that you useless i mean right like totally totally well, close to it's uh, destitution at any moment right like, it's been replaced with uh <laughs> to use the i'm sure dated term because i can't keep up with slang but you got to be hungry it's not about the security you just got to be hungry bruh yeah which you, is you, like you just got to be hungry it's just like it's like you, that meme of, of lord farquaad going oh 
The proletariat has misidentified with the bourgeoisie. <laughs> or something stupid like that. <laughs> but, like, the, the idea that, like, it's all about the grind. And, like, I think that there's been, like, a big rise of that with a lot of, like, finance stuff, which is all... Like man. finance bros? Yeah. Yeah, the, totally. Like, you gotta be hungry, bro. You gotta want it, man. And, like, <laughs> you know, if you're an artist... You can, you can you have a couple choices. And I think a lot of artists in the modern era have decided to try and recultivate boredom. Mm. I mean, or immersion, not boredom. I'm going to say it in the... Uh, composers like John Luther Adams with these very long experiences. Morton Feldman. And to tie it back to last week, John Cage. And this is from a different era, but I think John Cage has an allure to me now because it requires you to be deeply not hungry <laughs> mm. to listen to so, the number um, pieces. Man, a couple things that I think tie really well into this. Um, Rick and Morty episode from this last season where they do a lot of like the meta fourth wall breaking stuff. They're, yeah. they're talking to a writer of the show at one point point of it it's it pretty fucking crazy yeah yeah but there's a monologue about like art that like nailed like nailed some heartstrings for me because like when i first you know started diving into music it's like something serious more than a hobby you know i'm going to school 10 years behind all these other kids that i'm with so i was like i gotta grind so i was you know, trying to practice like eight hours a day, just yeah, grind as much as I can, stuff as much information as I could, and that will burn you out so fast. I mean, it, it definitely like helped get me to a point where I wasn't drowning when, you know, I didn't know anything about music theory and that stuff before going to college for it. Um, it was, uh, got pretty close to just like ruining music. Yeah. Because it, it became so much of a grind. And uh, I found that, like, the more I tried to, like, force progress and, you know, good playing and whatnot, the, the less productive it really was. Like, just letting it, letting it come. Just seep is... in. And, you know, okay, to take a psychoanalytic approach, which I... I dare I say maybe my now default I, I used to be more in the phenomenological lens and now I think my default lens I go to is psychoanalysis doesn't all of what Mark Fisher's hinting at here imply that we're overvaluing our own ego instead of our unconscious or the symbolic or, or all these other registers it's all imaginary yeah it's all ego it's all recognition in the cybersphere, which is really bad. You know, like for kids, it's kind of funny. Like Facebook, the idea that other people are happier than you is such a common experience of being online, right? That, that, that there's these cultivated images of others mm. and they're complete. It's almost like a monstrous redoubling of the mirror stage where you have the mirror stage and then as a, as a, as, an, as a very very small child and then nowadays you get to high school and you have your second mirror stage where you see the completion the false completion of all these other random motherfucking people <laughs> you know it's like which of course is just as the imaginary uh, dimension incomplete like fundamentally not valuing the whole of the human dimension or or the subject in that sense mm. that was a lot of theory talk Basically, what I'm saying is, is that if you think everyone around you is happier than you, you may not think it, and if you're overvaluing the ego, you're not realizing that your unconscious is believing it. Mm. Or that some part, part of you is believing that others are more complete than you are. Oh, that's a uh, that that's definitely a uh, a struggle I dealt with a lot getting into music like that's that's imposter syndrome to the t is is this concept like you're not doing something right like yeah you know, all that kind of stuff and it's just 
Yeah. It's hard to shake out sometimes. Like, and I was really hard on John Cage last week, but John Cage is sort of like a hammer to the modern era, right? Because all of these things are not issues for John Cage. I guess he was firmly in the Fordist era, but there's a, there's a remedy in there, I think. Um, to change it a little bit, one of my favorite quotes is on the beginning of the second page to convert political antagonisms into medical conditions and i'm gonna make a very if we were ever monetized in life on youtube this would be the moment we become demonetized but i have floated with you before the idea that we we pathologize terrorism Ooh. like we always say like for example there was a man in utah the other day who planned to to murder biden Basically, he was, Biden was visiting for whatever reason, and and this guy was like, and the easiest, most like common way to explain him away is that the right wing has created a scenario where so-called quote unquote crazy people can be emboldened to act. Mm. But that's doing that thing, right? Where that's converting political antagonisms into medical conditions. I think people really just don't want to see that guy as a political actor. Or, or trying any way not to see him as political. <laughs> well, I mean, did you see, like, the statement from his family after? Yeah, they, they said like, something that was, like, flat wrong. would never do something violent. And while he may have gotten caught up with some political things, he'd never act on these things. He was just, you know, talking. But he was I mean, expressing I, his First Amendment right, which is a deeply bad argument so like, I, so like that one doesn't help either I swear, but. <laughs> like ever since i was a kid that's like the first thing when you learn about the first amendment and you know you have your class the police officer and they're like never make threats against like the president and you're like well isn't that a violation of my first amendment they're like yeah that doesn't matter it's the president yeah it's like that it seems like that should be common knowledge like well you can I say mean, a lot of dumb stuff but you can't be like you know when so-and-so big political person comes here, yeah, I'm going to bust out my Geely camouflage suit and my rifle and take care of the problem. Like, that's... That's pretty specific. Yeah, it's... And, it's it, like, and you, it's just you've another got way no to... leg to stand on yeah. legally with that. And you're also explaining him away again. You know, the family explained him away just as much as culture does. The problem is if you don't explain him away then what you're left with is a political landscape right now that is saying tacitly yes to political violence. Ooh. I mean, doesn't January 6th prove that there's a tacit yes to political violence oh. right now? That that's acceptable and encouraged, but don't worry, they're quote-unquote crazy, so we don't have to deal with them, even though we are encouraging that activity i mean to be fair political violence has kind of been ingrained in america from the very beginning as politics right yeah. like as politics and i'm that's i mean i think that's really uncomfortable i think a lot of people would hear that thought and just go no absolutely not the person was was crazy but i have a second example of pathologization that more people would probably be empathetic to which is there's a great song, I forget the song lyric, I forget the name of the person who wrote the song or the band, but it is, um, I used to have the blues, now they call it depression. Oh. And uh, isn't that the same it's thing? It's on the tip of my tongue, yeah. So, you know, you don't have an existential condition that has you, you have a problem that society views as a sort of supplement to your being not like part of your condition Oof. and that might be a problematic way to talk about it actually i it's kind of tough um because you know when it comes to like a lot of mental health stuff are we just getting better at recognizing and treating these things or are we, you know, turning political antagonisms into a medical condition? Yeah, because the blues is political. 
it's it's a condition that is deeply not just an imaginary it's symbolic it's it's a state of being of you in communion with with a large group um often thought as the black black experience and it's not just you it's almost like you're in communion with others who have the blues mm. when you're playing the blues um by the way that song's by the bahamas it's called no depression mm. but yeah like that one I, I i do feel like when we pathologize everything what we kind of say to the person going through something is that it's radically external to you which I am very torn apart because obviously I incredibly support therapy and going everyone going when they need help. Um, but on a certain level, I wonder if pathologizing something and treating it externally lifts the labor that one maybe should be doing. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. No, I, I definitely can see what you mean I mean I um I think that you know our current culture and you know pop culture in general has kind of diminished a lot of our attention span so I often wonder how much you know how much of it's ADHD and how much of it's never developing a pattern of discipline and focus in a younger year because you in younger years because you've just always been inundated with stimulus if that makes sense yeah and that could be and i have to also kind of check my background i, 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 I don't know enough things. about this yeah stuff. i don't know about yeah, and so like i would also purely say just that guessing some of this verges on myths that are not good about you know ADD because 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 we've done so much work about like moving things forward and accepting these as medical conditions, and I think all of that's good. So I, I want to be careful and not say yeah, like absolutely that, yes. that a person who has ADHD is fundamentally like because because I think someone could read what I just said and say you're oh, just well, lazy yeah, yeah or like the right wing thing dumb thing whereas really like I guess my position would be that when you pathologize be careful what you include in in your tumor <laughs> i guess mm, that's a great way to put it like what goes into the tumor is really important um speaking of which so um mark fisher of course uh really sadly committed suicide and when i learned about it it really affected me because you know, he's just such a great writer. And, but I, you know, I got this sense that he said somewhere that, like, depression is often thought of as, like, a personal thing. And he thought vehemently that it wasn't. You know, that it had to be shared as a communal experience. And, I don't know, I just kind of appreciate that in the writing. Even if he's going oh. through a high time, a good time. There's still a period, there's still a sense of negativity you know in his writing yeah i well i mean along that line you know do you think like our increase of like focus on the individual and our individuality the power of of the one over community you know you're to the extreme like ann randian style of, of thinking yeah know? yeah um i i mean I could see some connections between like that thought process and the way that we see and deal with depression now. Yeah, um, like that, there's that, that line very from individualist thing instead yeah. of like a communal experience, you know? Yeah, like um like what events are grievable instead of just a personal loss? In the modern era, a lot of things become, it seems like, in, in the era we live in now, a personal loss instead of a communal loss. Mm. The loss of a relative isn't the loss of a matriarch of a community anymore. It's the loss of this person's grandma. I, I can definitely see that. 
Or like in Hawaii, where it's like, on one hand, it feels like in an earlier era, I mean, this is probably not true. We probably would have always been terrible at this. But in Hawaii, you know, it's a real deep loss for a lot of the community. And the positive things I see are when I see like the Salt Lake Tribune share how people in our community are connected to Hawaii and who's lost other people. And I almost wonder if like the bad faith position is that like, you know, just like some random people died somewhere. Mm. You know, I wonder if a more healthy position to take is that grieving is instead about distance that maybe should be closer than we think about it. I don't I don't know. Maybe that's wrong. I I mean, I obviously don't know enough about this stuff. This is purely just... Yeah, I mean, either. Yeah, shit, I don't know. You know? <laughs> so, I, I can definitely see that, because I also... I think that, like, our news cycles, especially, like, the growth of the 24-hour news cycle, has almost made us, like, numb to large trauma. Yeah? If that makes sense. Like, South Park did a great episode about, like, school shootings... Where it's just like, it's an everyday thing, like, you know, just crazy kid at the school shooting up, you know, shooting up the school, and then we move on to the next tragedy, and it's, I don't know, it... And I think, I think where, again, the psychoanalytic lens would, would, would rise its ugly head to a lot of people, very ugly head for a lot of people, mm. would be to say that, um... All of that is irrelevant to how an event is being or not being inscribed in your unconscious. You know, like like there can be a sense in which I here's, here's an example, a very concrete one. Um, COVID, there were still shootings, you know, but but there were less, if I remember right, during COVID or more. God, I don't even know. But COVID, speak I mean, inscribed somewhere. Hopefully, thirty years I could piece out that that line of linearity, right? Yeah. But like. I remember in high school, I just was like, you know, all these school shootings, they're, they're a false threat to my sense of security, and I will not let them impinge on my joy. That was my naive mm. high schooler position. And then, you know, I go to see the first production at Eccles since COVID, and I, I almost had a panic attack because there was a man walking around the edge of the periphery, and I just thought, we're all going to die right now. <laughs> it was like it went away and everything was fine but I was like oh shit it's it's inscribed you know like there's everyone still has those moments even if we sort of want to shove them under the rug yeah like I I saw a bunch of videos of like Americans visiting Europe and stuff like clubs and they'll do like big flashes and bang sounds in like these clubs and videos of like the american tourists like hitting the floor as soon as it oh, starts oh god yeah of course it's just like instant trauma reaction you're assuming that that's what's happening which is oh that's crazy that like we've conditioned that like we've managed to actually condition that as a behavior for some people is kind of terrifying yeah it's bad and i think that the good news, if there is good news, <laughs> I think we, I think uh, we are enter. It's funny because our tone with the Haraway and with the Cage was eminently positive about about sense of being. I mean, I had gripes with John Cage, but like sense of life being basically positive, I guess, if it's just a spectrum there. And I would put Mark Fisher on the far end of of negative, but I still think there is a sense of what to do. Yes, it's I don't not know, right. Like it's it's not like this hopeless text that's like ah, the the clock has reached zero. We're all dead. Like we're doomed. There is still very much like a I don't know. Get bored again. Like find ways to be bored. Yeah, and for me, that's being immersive. Like I think that was for me that was discovering phenomenology. Is I could just sit with this book. And it was just in the book, whatever my questions were. And so I didn't have to have all this source stuff. I was just in a book um, in the way that our partners are with fantasy and romance novels, where they can be just mm. immersed in the book. Oof. And so you, true. with which book? I <laughs> well, mean, I, I've definitely like had books like that, <laughs> but I, 
I have never reached like the immersion level that Kari does with certain books. Like I've like had like full statements, like talk to her about stuff. And then after not receiving a response for a second, I'm like, oh, reading. And, like, none of it. Nothing will <laughs> nothing will have gauged. It's yeah. just, like, when she's, like, in, her ears are just off. And it's just the book and nothing else. And uh, not uh, not as easy for me. Like, there's, there's mm-hmm. definitely times where, you know, I'm sucked in enough that everything else is just kind of... Nothing's getting in yeah but like Kari can just turn it off interesting yeah. uh, uh, Preston flicked uh, you know snapped his fingers and the lights flickered which was a very funny little moment um, yeah I think you're right I mean I think uh, for me you know it was philosophy is able is able to do that I can read the text we read without seeing much um, and then also I think like binge watching TV, there's a positive aspect where you're really immersed in something. And a lot of people want to, you know, say that's a bad thing. And I like think there's, I think there's kind of like two kinds of binge watching. Yeah. Okay. They're the, I'm bored, not really paying attention, scrolling through your phone, binge watching kind of stuff, which is the definition of like just constant low, level the constant stimulus, low level stimulus. Low yeah. And then there's the binge watching of like, finding a new show that you destroy the whole season in a day because you're just enthralled with it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I had that with um, the Mushishi anime where I just Mm. was like in... I think that's also... Okay, here's a weird thought that maybe... um, So one of the themes that's not explored here that Mark Fisher writes about is the slow erasure of the future. And he used to think... He would say that there used to be again, this is 10 years ago or 20 years ago, um, in the 60s, 50s, 70s, there were utopian, terrifying, but just different views of the future. And his thought is that it's easier to picture, I think he steals this from Zizek, or uses, or quotes Zizek, it's easier to picture the end of the world than it is the end of capitalism, capitalism. right? Which is a great way to open a book. But I, I do think there's an aspect of that in regards to member berries. Oh, you know, man. Like I, I remember Indiana Jones. Oh, and you, I remember. You know, and it's partially because I'm guessing those were, in our mind, collectively enthralling. Mm. Moments of deep focus that you were captivated by. And when they return, I guess my guess would be there's a sense that that enthrallingness of them can also return oh, it's that's uh that's it's spot on i mean look at all like the remakes like one of my biggest pet peeves with disney these days is like let's take animated movies where we have these stories that we animated because that's the medium that works best for the story we're telling but now we have special effects so let's like retell the story in real life but they're like robbed of the magic that the animated ones had in the first place yeah i would even argue those are worse than member like like star wars episode 7 i think is a a terrible film for me i mean i mean a lot of people liked it and i i I have kind of a two i didn't mind seven i liked it but i also deeply hated it downhill for me from the i i i I watched seven and i went oh my god why are you doing this to me? I do remember. I remember Harrison Ford. The uh, why is he returning as a sort of demon? So like what this is this? Was, like? This was like my biggest pet peeve. Have you seen the newest Jurassic Park movie? No. Okay, so oh, I, both were like tr- trilogies of the Jurassic Park did like the exact same arc. But the newer ones were just not as good. So, like, the first Jurassic Park movie, still to this day, one of my all-time favorites. Fucking awesome. Special effects are great. The characters are awesome. The casting's perfect. It's an amazing movie. The Lost World, not that great. Jurassic Park 3, not that great. Jurassic World, when they rebooted it, first one, it was fun. It was, like, special effects were good. The characters are fun. Second one, massive drop-off third one was such an eye roll to me because 
that's like my exact thought was like yes we remember like <laughs> the whole thing was like how can we recreate all the scenes from the first Jurassic Park that have become like legendary how do we recreate every fucking one of them in this movie but it'll be new so like well, that's episode seven recreating episode six or yep. four, you know, it was, Death Star, it, Death World. It was the exact same fucking thing. So, yeah, like, yeah. Dr. Allen, Sadler, and uh, uh, Malcolm, they all are, like, in their original outfits at some point from the original one. Like, there's all these callbacks to it. And all these, like, dumb little it's the same camera angle and they're running from the T-Rex in a Jeep just like that one time in Jurassic Park. Remember how good Jurassic Park was? Yeah. Like, oh my God. It was just... And then one of the dumbest scenes that I was like, holy fuck, this is just like blatant. A bunch of fans wrote this on Reddit together and just threw together a bunch of yeah. yay canon stuff is when the new main characters meet the old main characters in a great climactic scene together. It's just so dumb. It's I love so it. dumb. I love it. I gotta watch it. I mean, I hate it, but I love it in a certain sense. Because I think I think you're right, and I also think that, like, you know, there's other ones like that, too. I haven't seen the remake of Blade Runner. It's not a remake. It's a sequel. It's a sequel? It's a sequel. Oh, that's a step in the right direction. I controversial opinion here. It was pretty good? I kind of liked the newer one better. Oh, okay, so I'll have to watch that one. I'm gonna, okay. I'm just gonna say it. Don't get me wrong. I love Harrison Ford. I love the original Blade Runner. Harrison Ford didn't know how to act yet in the original Blade Runner. He is hammier than all fuck in so many scenes. Like, he's just... Like, yeah. don't, the atmosphere is amazing. And, you know, we're, the source material's one of my all-time favorite authors, if not my favorite. Like, I absolutely adore Philip K. Dick. And I think it's a great, like, the way they did the story and stuff was awesome. I love Blade Runner, but I felt like the new one was just a better movie. that had better acting. I liked what they did with the story without having the source material. Yeah. I thought it was a really cool direction. I really liked the new Blade Runner. I, All right. I like the okay. director, too, because he also yeah. fucking burned it down with Dune. All right. Well, I gotta, I'll have to watch him. But all right, getting back to our lovely... I like it when it's like the idea of it being a shorter text so we can go further away from the text to bounce up for it, because it's like... Um, I would say that the second line where... In page two where he's talking... Not second line, like second last paragraph he gets into why boredom was bad or you know when we get into it why it's bad for boredom is a state of absorption a state of high absorption in fact which is why it is such an oppressive feeling boredom consumes our being we feel we will never escape it but it is just this capacity for absorption that is now under attack mm-hmm. and I, I just felt like I needed to read the whole quote there because it, it gives context to everything you're saying and so I think, for me, I don't have too much more to say, actually, on the essay. My, my parting thought, and I'd love to hear yours, is I think that as artists, there's a sense in which the call to action here, which is implicit, is to cultivate spaces of immersion and, and risk boredom, maybe. Mm. I uh, I would definitely agree with you there, and you know I I liked this a lot because boredom is not necessarily the term I would have used because of the negative connotation with it, but the way that he talks about it in this like just nail on the head for you know something that I have struggled with myself and that I'm like really adamant with a lot of students is like the importance of like it doesn't have to be hours a day. It just needs to be focused attention. You need to immerse yourself in it for a little while. It's going to be boring. Like, that's, it's one of the things that drives me nuts with, like, younger kids when you start diving into any, like, 
scale exercises and all these things that, you know, they don't understand that down the road they're going to be real glad they learned these things and that they grinded through the boredom to realize the connections here. Like, I just don't think that you can ever really understand, like, a decent language of music and be able to, like, speak it well if you haven't spent time bored with it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, you need to have gotten to the point where, like, you can hear the distance between notes, and that's not something that just happens naturally in the background. It's, it's something that, like, I think for most people takes a lot of attention and boredom, essentially, because it's not... It's not really fun to work on a lot of that stuff. You know, most technique, theory, all that stuff, although there are some parts of theory that's actually pretty fun. You get into, like, more the puzzle aspects yeah, of it and of everything. It's, yeah, it's a but, like, initially, like, the learning aspects of it, it's a lot of boring stuff, but it's important to immerse yourself in that boredom Yeah. to, like, better understand these things. And like you said, at the, at the beginning, like, Anything that requires your immersion is, you know, usually things that are worth doing at the end of the day. Like, yeah, it's kind of the, the payoff to eliminating the other stimulus that you're used to all the time and just, you know, steeping in the boredom, if you will. But like the idea that, you know, inspiration, if you want to call it that, in artistic stuff isn't isn't necessarily a product of grinding out and putting in the most hours it's it's more just like letting the flow happen i saw this great thing of um i can't remember what writer they were talking about these people were which i'm assuming the people complaining were likely not real writers either but they you know were talking about how you know this fairly famous writer only works a maximum of four hours or a thousand words a day and they're saying like oh you like they don't have a right to call themselves a professional writer like it's part-time at best blah 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 and neil gaiman's comment on that was like i wrote Coraline at 50 words a day hmm are we gonna are we gonna say that neil gaiman isn't a full-time writer <laughs> i'd also say you random it? internet people don't you know the voice in my head why are you saying those words <laughs> shut up like <laughs> yeah well lovely 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 it yeah, was a joy I really to read mark that one. fisher that was fantastic i'm excited for more of his stuff that we'll on the podcast be revisiting mark fisher he wrote a book his last book before passing was i think the the weird and the eerie which might be one that we want to read for the show at some point. I would be down for it. All right. Well, I think that'll be it for this week, y'all. All right, we're signing off. Mm -hmm.